Father, thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it is your word that opens our eyes. Uh, it is your word and your spirit uh, that, that gives life uh, to us, that helps us to see you for who you are. And as we think about uh, your disciples, as we think about uh, what was going on in their hearts and minds, as we think about their need, uh, how they needed you to come alongside of them, to open their eyes, to open their, their hearts, uh, to see Christ for who he, he truly is. God, we, we want to think about ourselves. We want to think about our, our need for that same thing, uh, to have our eyes and our hearts opened to see you for who you are. So Lord, I ask that through the reading and the preaching of your word this morning, that you would do that, that you would cause us uh, to see you, cause us to trust you more, to believe in who you are, to believe in what you have done for us in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. There's a lot to be said about having a strong work ethic. Uh, Growing up in Wisconsin, in southern Wisconsin, in a farming community, and now living in the Fox Valley area with the long history of industry, there is plenty of evidence around about the Protestant work ethic, about a strong work ethic. And there's a a certain kind of self-sufficiency that many people enjoy through their hard work. And this is the American dream, right? Upward mobility made possible through hard work. And while there's elements of this way of life that I think are beneficial to society, right, they're beneficial to our lives, it has its downsides as well. When our hardworking self-sufficiency produces feelings of superiority, or in a weird way causes us to isolate ourselves from other people, which I think I've seen in this part of the state a little bit more than where I grew up. When we start to believe that 
weakness is a bad thing. Depending on other people is a bad thing or a sign of weakness. And when we feel like we need to fake it until we make it, then we are on dangerous ground. The reality is, first, that we are not all as strong as we think or wish we could be. Second, our strength needs to come from without and not from within. And third, faith is hard. And trusting is hard. We have a hard time trusting others. We have a hard time trusting ourselves sometimes. And we have a hard time ultimately trusting God. We've been in John's gospel. We've been looking at Jesus' I am statements. Seeing how he confronted his original audience in their unbelief or in their lack of faith. And how he confronts us here today, sitting here 2,000 years later. Last week we saw a shift from the focus on the unbelieving Jews, the religious leaders, to Jesus focusing on his friends Mary and Martha. He lovingly confronted their fears of death by reminding them who he is. I am the resurrection and the life. This week and next week, we'll see Jesus and his disciples in the upper room for our next two I Am statements. And if you're not very familiar with John's gospel, uh, this section here is is a a very special section of the gospel. It's it's probably one of my favorite sections in all of scripture. If I I could pick like a, a chunk of four or five chapters that I could just like read every day, this would probably be it, uh, John 13 through 17. It is an intimate picture of Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. It's go time, right? He's preparing them, he's about, to, he's about to leave them, and he's preparing them for ministry. He's preparing them for life in this world as he goes away. In chapter 13, um, there we see this uh, the, the Passover meal, and this is what's happening, the, the Passover meal before he's betrayed and arrested. In chapter 13, he washes the disciples' feet. He tells them about Judas's betrayal. He speaks about himself going away. And then he tells Peter that, that Peter is going to deny him. So after three years of walking with them, of teaching them, of being incredibly patient with their repeated failures to understand, it all comes down to this. And Jesus clearly knew what they were feeling. I'm sure he could see it on their faces, right? After he says, one of you is going to betray me, and Peter, you're going to deny me three times. But he also knew their hearts. And so he lovingly confronts their troubled hearts and their weak faith here in chapter 14. Troubled hearts and weak faith. This is our reality most days, isn't it? And let's be honest with ourselves, with others, and with God. We feel the temptation to put on the happy face, right? To act like everything is just okay, that we've got it all together. We show up for church, and if we're honest, we play this fake it till we make it game too, right? Because faith is hard It's hard to keep trusting the Lord when the bills aren't getting paid and there's not enough food on the table. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
It's hard to keep trusting the Lord when it feels like the darkness of the world just continues to get darker and darker. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It's hard to keep trusting the Lord when it feels like thieves and robbers and false shepherds keep scattering the flock. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And it's hard to keep trusting the, Lord's, the Lord when our loved ones die from cancer or, for, or when our friends die unexpectedly. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. These things trouble our hearts. And what does faith look like when our hearts are troubled? How does Jesus lovingly confront our weak and troubled hearts? That's what we're going to look at this morning. If you're taking notes there in the back of the, uh, the insert, kind of breaking this down into three parts, the first thing we're going to look at in verses 1 through 7 is Jesus' affirmation of belief. He starts off and he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. This is not just some nice suggestion. Hey, disciples, it would probably be good if you didn't let your hearts be troubled. This is a command from Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled. They needed this reminder, especially after the news that he just dropped on them in chapter 13. Again, he could see it on their faces. He could, he could see it in their hearts. Do not be troubled. And the next thing he says is just as important as the command that he gave them to not have troubled hearts. Believe. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now there's a, there's a debate about how this should be translated. If you have the ESV, there's a footnote uh, on the first, after, after God there, and it says, you believe in God. There's two ways this could be translated. The ESV translates it. Uh, in the Greek, the, the indicative, which just is the mood of what is, and the imperative, uh, which is a command. The, those words look exactly the same in the Greek, so there's usually we can tell from context. Um, here, we're not exactly sure how it can be translated. The, the ESV translates it as both imperatives, so believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, it could be translated indicative first and then imperative. So you believe in God, which is what is true, because they do, right? Believe also in me. Uh, or they could both be translated as indicatives. You believe in God, you believe also in me. Um, kind of hard sometimes to, to figure out what that might be, but I think a, a good, helpful way to, to look at this um, is the translation that's offered by William Hendrickson. He, he gives this in the Baker New Testament commentary. He says, Continue to trust in God, also in me continue to trust. And I like this because it captures both of those elements. There's the command part of it, continue to trust in me. He's telling them to, to trust. It's a command. But looking at it as a, as a present tense, continue, you already are doing this, continue to do it. It kind of brings those, those two elements uh, together. So again, they already trust in him. Their, their faith might be weak, but he's telling them to continue, to keep pressing on, to keep trusting. And we need to be reminded here who he's talking to, right? He's talking to his closest followers 
those who have been with him through all of this stuff that has been happening, happening for three years. They've been ready, as they have said, to lay down their lives for him. They have confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. They have said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Jesus is not talking to these disciples who have have utterly, utterly rejected him and who have no faith. They do have faith, but they need that reminder to keep going, to continue on in that faith. So Jesus affirms their belief in him, and then he points them forward. This is something that must always be part of our faith. It's not only backward looking. We don't just look back and say, well, this is what God has done for me. We must look forward in forward looking faith. Which he does when he speaks to them of his father's house. The place that he is going to prepare a place for them. A place with many rooms. And he's not only going, he says he is going and he will come again and he will take them to himself. He's going to go, he's going to come back. He's going to take them back to be with him, himself. So again, this is this forward-looking faith and hope that he is trying to instill in them. This was the promise that their troubled hearts needed to hear. And he adds to his comforting promise by telling them that they know the way to where he is going in verse 4. But after all this time, even though he's told them, Thomas is still a little confused. Verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? It's easy to fault Thomas here, but remember, much of Jesus' prior statements about where he was going, much of them were in confrontation with the religious leaders. Thomas and his disciples, they would have overheard these conversations Chapter 7, when the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus, Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. So he says it very, very clearly. I'm going to him who sent me. I'm going to my father. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Chapter 8, again, to the religious leaders, he said, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And we saw this, they say, is he going to kill himself? He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. What's he talking about? Or just before this, in chapter 13, if you just look back one chapter, in verses 33 and 36, 33, it says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 36 Peter asks him, Lord, where are you going? He said, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Okay? So it's hard not to, like, see Thomas. Like, Thomas is obviously confused here because he kind of feels like he's getting mixed messages, right? But Jesus, knowing this, says very plainly to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Very common, popular verse, right? Most people know John fourteen six. Jesus is the way to the Father. 
He is the only mediator between God and men, 1 Timothy 2.5. He is the only redeemer of God's elect, as we saw in our catechism question, Shorter Catechism 21. He's the way, the only way. He is the truth. We see this in verse 7. If you would have known me, you would have known my Father. The only way to know the truth and to truly know God is to know Jesus. Jesus is the life. He is the source of life and the giver of life. And he has already spoken to his disciples about this. He said in in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is the promise, the I am, the resurrection, and the life promise that Jesus made to Mary and Martha in chapter 11. So Jesus basically asks, do you want to get to the Father and truly know the Father and have eternal life with the Father? If so, then he is the only way. He offers himself as the only solution, the only answer to those questions. But we need to step back here, right? And say, wait a minute, Jesus. Aren't you being a little narrow-minded? How can you claim that you are the only way to the Father? That's a little bit exclusive, Especially here today in our enlightened society. You know that we've moved past such narrow-mindedness, don't you? Well, no doubt any of us who have had conversations about Jesus with non-believing family or friends, we have had to answer this objection. You've probably heard things like, How can you be so intolerant? Surely there are many paths that lead to God. And what about all the good people out there? But there's no way around this. We can't sugarcoat this truth. Jesus is exclusive. Christianity is exclusive. The message of the gospel, the message of the cross is exclusive. And how do we rightly communicate this exclusivity? It must come from a position of humility. If you're a Christian, the reality of the gospel that you claim to believe is this. You were a sinner and deserved hell and the eternal wrath of God. And God in his grace, mercy, steadfast love, and kindness saved you even when you were dead in your sin and in rebellion to him. You did Nothing, zero, to earn this. And you have nothing to boast in except in the mercy of God and in the cross of Christ. Jesus did not come to save smart, hard-working, self-sufficient Midwesterners like you and I, but broken, hell-bound sinners. Tell someone that Jesus is the only way to get to the Father like that? And then let God deal with them if they persist in their unbelief. And if that's you, 
If you're here today and, and you don't trust in Jesus, I plead with you to turn from your sin and rebellion. Turn to Jesus, the only one who can save you from your sin. The only one through whom you can know and see the Father. He makes that promise to you, and he alone can do it. So trust and believe in him. No matter where you're at in relation to to faith in Jesus, if you believe or, or don't believe, this next interaction between Jesus and Philip is very instructive for all of us. The next thing we, th- we see is Jesus' confrontation of unbelief in verses 8 through 11. Jesus has just told his disciples in verse 7 that if they had known him, they would know and see the Father. Philip famously replies, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Show us the Father and the word here, enough, means we will be content. We'll be satisfied. If you just, if you just show us the Father, give us, give us the picture like, that Moses saw, right? Give us this vision of God, and we will be content. Jesus provides the most loving rebuke imaginable. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Now, the first you here is plural. So he's saying, have I been with you all, y'all, right? I think we need to start translating y'all into the English so we can see this better. But have I been with you all, disciples, so long, and you still do not know me? But the second there is he's talking to Philip personally. So he addresses them all, and then he addresses Philip individually. He's saying, I've been with you, my dear disciples, and with you, Philip, three whole years, day in and day out, speaking to you about my Father. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? He confronts their unbelief. Then he reiterates the claim that he made in chapter 5 that we kicked this whole series off with. He says that he doesn't speak on his own authority. Every word that he speaks is the work of the Father in him. Because he is in the Father and the Father is in him. They need to understand this. Verse 11, he tells them, Believe me. Here there is no question that this is an imperative. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And then he says, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Well, What's he talking about here? What works is he talking about? I don't know, maybe feeding 5,000 people in an open field from a little boy's lunch? Walking on water and calming a storm? Healing people who were blind from birth? Raising people from the dead? Jesus' challenge to the disciples here is so appropriate given what they have already witnessed. I think we see this in our world today that there is a lot of skepticism about miracles. 
And there's kind of this weird dynamic, right, in our, in our scientific age. Uh, people deny that miracles can even exist. But then the people who are, say, well, I don't want to believe in Jesus, I don't want to believe in Christianity, they kind of, on the other hand, they demand to see miracles, right? Like, I'm not going to believe unless I, unless I see a miracle. Show me some proof of God's existence. But even that wasn't enough for the disciples. Can you imagine that list of things I just read? Can you imagine seeing all those things and still being like, ah, I don't know. Thomas was among them. Thomas, whose unbelief Jesus would need to confront again. In John chapter 20, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples But Thomas wasn't there. Thomas said to the rest of the crew, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And we're going like, what? Like, come on, man. Haven't you seen everything? your, Your brothers who have seen Jesus Raised from the dead are telling you this. And you're like, nope, not buying it. It makes me feel a lot better about my doubts. But Jesus loved Thomas way too much to leave him alone in his unbelief. He came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And he turned to Thomas and he said, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas finally gets it. He says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus' response to him is something that we so desperately need to hear and remember because this is our reality. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the reality of the Christian faith for billions who have lived and believed since Jesus ascended into heaven. This is crazy if you really think about it, right? It's crazy that we're sitting here in this room 2,000 years later believing that some man who walked in the Middle East, claimed to be God, was crucified, rose again, and turned the world upside down. Sitting here believing that God has revealed himself to us through these words on a page and that he's speaking to us today, that he's producing faith in the hearts of men and women today, that he's causing them to believe in someone their eyes have not seen and their hands have not touched Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. I've talked about this before. Again, just how crazy it is that we're here. How crazy it is that the gospel is true. If it, if it wasn't true, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, how did this small ragtag group of disciples who had no political authority, they had no money, they had no power, how do these guys go and turn the world upside down if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? And why would they give their lives But Jesus' resurrection from the dead changes everything. As my favorite lyrical theologian puts it, no resurrection Christianity would have never spread. 
The disciples weren't stupid guys who would ruin their lives and then choose to die for what they knew was a lie. That would be beyond ridiculous. Now the issue is the risen Christ seen by 500 eyewitnesses. Imagine 500 people in a court of law, each of them taking the stand reporting what they saw. If their stories lined up and made sense, the evidence would have to leave you convinced. But still, it's by faith that we trust and praise the Son who was raised for our justification. It's this faith being lived out day to day in the Christian life that Jesus talks about next. Verses 12 to 14, Jesus' reaffirmation of faith. The disciples' faith, not his reaffirmation of faith. A reaffirmation of their faith. Jesus talks about those who will believe in the future, doing greater works. And this is a passage that some people like to go to to support some signs and wonders theology. But greater here cannot mean more miraculous. I've heard people making claims about raising people from the dead today. I don't believe those claims. But have you ever heard of someone today claiming to walk on water or to calm a storm? No, right? Greater here is talking about greater in number, greater over time, maybe even in a sense greater in influence. What happened at Pentecost? The Spirit comes, right, and Peter preaches. 3,000 people are saved in one day. Jesus never did that. It's not that he couldn't, but this was his plan for the gospel to go out into the world. When he talks about greater works, he's talking about the conversion of lost people. He's talking about the gospel going forth in the world. Jesus says that this will be the case because he's going to the Father. And as we see in the second half of of this chapter, of chapter 14, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Comforter who will be with them. And later on in this chapter, again, he's going to say, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So it is by the work of the Spirit and the work of the prayers of God's people, which we see in verse 13 and 14, whatever we ask in his name, that is how the Father will be glorified in the Son. And this is what this is all about. Any great works that we do for God, any souls that are converted here in Oshkosh or anywhere else, any prayers that are answered, it's all for the glory of God and not our own. Don't be fooled by the crazy talk out there. Again, come watch American Gospel, okay? This is not some genie in a bottle Christianity. If you claim to follow Jesus because you think that you're going to get more stuff, I'm sorry, you're going to be sadly and eternally disappointed. What if the thing that we asked for daily was, Father, remind us of the truth of the gospel, that Jesus came and lived and died for us and returned to you, and that he's coming again to take us with him. What if we prayed, thank you, Jesus, that those of us who have seen you with the eyes of faith and believed that we have seen the Father. And finally, if we said, Lord, may all that I do be for your glory and not my own. I want to close with another quote from my other favorite theologian, 
J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on, on John, writes about this connection between heart trouble and faith. He says, heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. No rank or class or condition is exempt from it. No bars or bolts or locks can keep it out. Partly from inward causes and partly from outward. Partly from the body and partly from the mind. Partly from what we love and partly from what we fear. The journey of life is full of trouble. Even the best of Christians have many bitter cups to drink between grace and glory. Even the holiest saints find the world a veil of tears. Faith in the Lord Jesus is the only sure medicine for troubled hearts. To believe more thoroughly, trust more entirely, rest more unreservedly, lay hold more firmly, lean back more completely, this is the prescription which our master urges on the attention of all his disciples. No doubt the members of that little band which sat around the table at the Last Supper had believed already. They had proved the reality of their faith by giving up everything for Christ's sake. Yet what does their Lord say to them here? Once more he presses on them the old lesson, the lesson with which they first began. Believe. Believe more. Believe distinctly on me. And that is what we are called to, brothers and sisters. To believe, to believe more, to believe distinctly on Christ. And I love it that where this takes place is sitting around that table at the Last Supper. As we gather this morning, as we come to this table, we can think back to that time, right? We can picture these troubled scared, weary disciples sitting there with their master and him lovingly coming alongside them and comforting them and reminding them, believe, continue to believe in me, right? This is a picture of that. Continue to believe. We come to this table twice a month as a, as a picture of what that looks like. That we are continuing to trust. We are continuing to believe. We are continuing to say, Jesus, I need you. This table is not just for those who are members of Living Stone. This table is open to anyone who has professed faith in Christ. Anyone who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church. You're welcome to come. You're welcome to come and say, I need Jesus. I need my faith to be strengthened continually. We believe this is not just some memorial. We don't just remember and and look back. We believe that something actually happens when we take the supper. We believe that God meets with us. We believe that our faith is strengthened in the eating of the bread and the drinking of the wine.